The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I have nice blank sheets of paper for you to fill in. They're empty, but if you would like something to take notes on, please do. Could you help? Exodus is about God. We could say that about every story, about every part of the Word. God gives us His Bible that we might know Him, but Exodus is about God in a more distinct way, a more forthright way. It's trying to unpack the nature of his being. So this God that's sending you to be a messenger of deliverance, Moses, what is his name? Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I will not let the people go, says Pharaoh. So last week we saw that God responded both to Pharaoh and Israel's question from ten different angles, taking Pharaoh into an unbelievable season, Egyptians into an unbelievable season. From ten different plagues, God showed his massive power over all creation, over the human heart, over nature, over everything that Israel, sorry, over everything that Egypt thought were God's. God said, I'm bigger. Today we come to the portion of Scripture that all of the book has been pointing to. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses met God, it's called on the mountain of God. That's where the burning bush was. God said, this is how you're going to know it's indeed me, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's indeed me. This is how you're going to know I'm it, the one who's brought you out, because I'm going to bring you back to this place. So way back in Genesis, God had said, I'm going to fix the world's problem by raising up a deliverer, one who could be called my son. He promised this line of descendants through whom this royal deliverer would come. He had promised them that they would be slaves in a land not their own. But then God would deliver them and bring them out in order to take them to a land. And in that context, raise up one who would bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth, including you and me. So here we are in Exodus. God had said, before you get to the land, you're going to stop at my mountain, the mountain of God. The same place the burning bush was, and we begin in Exodus 19, verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... How long has it been since the Exodus? Three months. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. We don't put definite articles in front of nouns unless we already have a clue 
what we're talking about. He's not a father, he's the father, meaning we must know what father that is. Here it's the mountain, and this is an echo of Exodus 3.12 when God said you're going to come back to this mountain. For what purpose? To worship. You're going to serve me at this mountain. And so you and I as the reader have been having our anticipations built through the entire battle that was going on in Egypt. We know that we're going to get a definition of worship given to us. What does it mean to serve God? It's going to happen at this mountain. We're going to see it unpacked for us today. We've come to the mountain. So Israel camped there while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the house of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You were there. You saw how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... And be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, long ago you spoke. Israel heard in their physical ears and yet were deaf in their inner soul. They saw your glory, but it didn't change them. They had minds, but could not understand. We pray it would be different today. We pray that you would create upright fear in our souls the kind of fear that's the beginning of wisdom, a kind of fear of you that trembles when we know that you're at work within us graciously. You are a consuming fire. Help us to be the people you want us to be. Overcome prejudice and pride. Help us not be so bound to our comforts that we fail to love others. Speak to us today through your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So the waters parted. A wall on this side, a wall on this side. The ground became as if it were dry. A population, according to numbers, totaling 600,000 male warriors over 20. And nearly all of them would have been married, plus the kids. So we're talking about a population over a million people that went through on dry ground, then God having hardened Pharaoh and Egypt's heart, they went in after them and the waters came down and God brought salvation to Israel. They celebrated on the banks of the Reed Sea, the Red Sea, and then they hiked on for three months, it says, to get to Sinai. 
and how quickly their celebrations changed to sorrow and frustration, even taking God to court in chapter 17, putting Him in the docket and judging Him. Why? Well, let's get a glimpse as to what had happened in these months. Three months of Israel testing God in the wilderness. God tested them. Even today, He's going to test them like a a metal worker tests his iron, making it more and more pure. That's how the time in Egypt is described. They were in a furnace, getting burnt up in order to purify them. But this isn't about God testing Israel and making them more holy. This is about Israel turning on God and not liking the situation that he's brought them in. The causer of all things has redeemed them and moved them into an intense season of suffering. Praise the Lord. No, they don't want to praise the Lord. This is what we see. Six times we're told they tested God in three months. The first time happened before they even crossed the sea. They expressed fear that Pharaoh and his armies were going to overcome them. Didn't they remember how big their God was? When he said, let there be hail, there was hail. When he said, turn the water to blood, it was blood. When he said, let there be darkness, it was darkness. None of Egypt's gods had power to overcome Yahweh. Who is he? He's the one who controls all things. But they doubted at the Red Sea. The Egyptian armies could be seen. The dust from their chariots was reaching up into the sky, Israel freaked out, and God moved in. Three days into the journey, after the Red Sea experience, what do we find? In the wilderness of Marah, Israel complained that the spring was bitter and that they were thirsty. Two and a half months into the journey, Israel complained that they were hungry. God gives them manna. Some in Israel fail to eat their daily allotment. Others in Israel fail to gather what they need for the Sabbath. You remember God said he would, he would give them these little frosted flakes for breakfast every morning. Get what you need for the day. Do it for six days, but on the seventh day, I'm not going to give you any, so you need to collect double on Friday in order to preserve you through the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And some failed to collect extra on Friday, and they went out on Saturday morning, and they couldn't find any. They were testing God. They weren't believing His Word. They were either disobeying or they were failing to listen. At Rephidim, when the people were thirsty, they quarreled with Moses and with God. So when we come to this chapter, 
Over and over and over again, Israel has tested God's patience. How much love do I have to show you when you still doubt me? Yes, you're in a season of suffering. They're complaining, oh, I wish we could go back. I like the cucumbers we had when we were slaves. God had told them He would move them out of slavery and take them to the land, but they too quickly forgot where they were heading and wanted to go back because the season was really hard. It was very painful. It wasn't that God was distant. No, His presence was right in their midst. But somehow their eyes lost sight of the bigness of God and the favor of God and how much even within the last months he had proven himself. I've shared this story before. It took less than a month. Well, we were teaching in this class last year, Deuteronomy chapter 8, when we heard news, Teresa and I, that God was going to let us go get Ezra. And so we had, we had battled for months our own, against our own lack of belief and seeking to trust God. You had battled with us so many words of encouragement, so many prayers, so many Bible verses, edifying encouragement as we persevered not knowing if God would let us bring, us, bring our son home. Indeed, he, he, we got the call December twenty. I don't know, 28th, 28th, and two days later we're on the plane to Ethiopia. In the midst of that season, having taught through Deuteronomy 8 in here, where it says, remember where I led you, Israel, through the wilderness these 40 years in order to teach you, testing you, to humble you, to let you know what was in your heart? I wanted you to see that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that comes from the mouth of God. That's what I was teaching you. And then in the context of Deuteronomy 8, they're right on the brink of entering into the wilderness, and God's saying, I don't want you to forget what you learned in the past. And I found myself praying, even on the airplane, as we went to go pick up Ezra, God, help me not forget how you have stripped us of everything and proven to us that what we need is you. When all we have is you, it's enough. Help me not forget, just as you have helped us persevere well by your grace, not without failures, but you've upheld us. Now as we move into a season of plenty, you're bringing our son home. Help us not forget. And less than a month later was the pastor's conference on prayer. Teresa says, are you excited to go? And I said, well, the topic's okay. And I went and I listened to that first Tuesday morning session, the first session I got to go to, and the first words out of the preacher's mouth were, the level to which you're dependent on God is the level to which you'll treasure prayer. It had only been three weeks And I had forgotten how great God had been and how needy my own soul was of that grace. It only took me three weeks. Within a matter of three months, Israel had tested God's patience six times. And so when we come to this story 
of God entering into formalizing this relationship. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. We have to feel the weightiness of unbelievable grace. This is love undeserved. So when we look at verse three of ch- verse four of chapter nineteen, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's calling them. Consider your salvation. This is external salvation but all by grace. And the relationship that we're entering into is all by grace. You deserve punishment for you test me over and over and over again. But I in my holiness am still going to relate with you, Israel. We often don't think of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in the context of grace. But what I'm suggesting, in light of where the narrative has taken us, that we should think about it from the get-go. Israel doesn't deserve to be at the mountain, to experience worship, to enjoy the presence of God, but they're there. And it's where we are today. So this covenant renewal, God started something with the patriarchs. He's continuing it now with the Israel of God. He's called them His Son in Exodus 3. My Son. Exodus 4, rather. This covenant renewal and development that we're going to read about here, including the Ten Commandments and what's called the the covenant code, the book of the covenant, it's, it's driven by grace. It's driven by faithfulness. God has promises that are at stake. So to an undeserving people, he meets them. So let's look at these key verses. It really summarizes all of what Israel was supposed to be. I call it their great commission. These three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, are all about Israel's mission. The basis of their mission and the nature of their mission. The basis of their mission comes in verse 4. And I I use the word the basis, the foundation. Because there is no mission of God's people to display His greatness to the world, to image God to be what Adam was supposed to be, but he failed to be, to operate as God's Son, resembling, representing, reflecting their Father. Israel has no mission if there is no salvation. So I want you to see that key word in verse 5. In the ESV it says, Now therefore... Because verse 4 is true, verses 5 and 6 can happen. But there is no 5 and 6 apart from the foundation. So the basis of Israel's mission, which is going to be detailed in verses 5 and 6, is the fact that you've seen what I did for you. Before God ever calls them in verse 5, look at verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you'll keep my covenant before he ever calls them to be followers, obey me, before he ever does that, 
Israel has already experienced the exodus. The Mosaic Covenant is not a works first relationship. You be good enough, and then I'll think about bringing you out of Egypt. You be good enough, and then I'll save you from your sin. No, we can't, we can't line up that way. That's not the way the Old Covenant was set up externally with laws that came on tablets of stone and a redemption that was physical. That was grace. And the grace of redemption preceded the grace of law-giving. And that's how it is in the New Covenant as well. Only now it's internalized. Christ's work provides the foundation upon which we seek to be disciples. In fact, it's, it's that work of grace, that redeeming work of grace that gives us fuel for being who we're supposed to be, imperfect as we are. Because I could not wake up tomorrow morning in order to pursue God, knowing full well how sinful I am unless I knew that every sin I hope to conquer has already been forgiven. I'd be defeated from the beginning if I didn't know God was 100% for me already in Christ. We have to have redemption as the basis of all call to obedience. And that's how it was for Israel. Basis moves to the nature. The basis of their mission, the nature of their mission. Israel was never designed to live for themselves. Through you, Israel, the world will be blessed. Remember? God had set this family apart, Abraham and his descendants, his offspring, in order that one of them might rise up, a royal king, a deliverer, a male offspring, would come who would ultimately defeat the evil one. So you've got an entire people who are putting their hope in God and his promise of the deliverer. In fact, the entire people are supposed to be what Adam was supposed to be, imagers of God displaying his greatness to the world so that when the world looked at Israel, what they saw was God on the throne of their lives. Look at how it's worded. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant and be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the ESV has an if, and it doesn't put the then in there, but you actually does it. No, it doesn't put the then in. It, but you understand where the ESV is saying it should go. If, then. If the conditions are met, the mission will be accomplished. That's the idea. So long as you're operating in the ifs, the then will be happening. And the then is, you can see, I have a little bit different wording in my screen than you've got in your Bibles. Just because I'm not putting the then until verse 6. 
I'm including in the if that treasured possession statement. Hebrew doesn't use the thens that often. It uses lots of ifs. And then you have to look for something to change in the text to know when the then comes. And I'm just disagreeing with the ESV guy at this point because I don't think there was any signal. I think the only signal comes in verse 6. And so what I think that God is telling Israel they need to do, the means by which their mission will be accomplished, the, the essence of the mission is kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to think about what that means. But the means for fulfilling the mission, how am I to be a priest and a holy people? Well, here's how. Three ways. Be good listeners. Heed my voice. Keep my covenant. Covenant the fancy word for relationship. So walk in a relationship with me. And I'm the leader. That means you're the follower. When I say jump, you jump. When I say go right, you go right. When I say love your neighbor and don't steal, know that I'm calling you to this for your best and not for your ill. Keep my covenant. Be my treasured possession. This word treasured possession is the word used throughout the... Uh, it's, it's found a handful of times, usually always echoing this passage. But it is found two times in a non-spiritual context where the king has his treasured possession. It's his um, royal treasury. What's precious to him? His his uh, what he considers precious and most valuable. And I think God is calling us to live like that. Do you consider yourself a treasured possession of God? He desires that we live that way. As someone who's been claimed through war, and you're his bounty. It, it takes a new identification of mind to live as one who is unbelievably cherished by God. My oldest daughter is 12, and that means, or she's 13 in three weeks, which means that 14 years ago, my wife and I experienced a miscarriage that was massively devastating to our souls. We loved this baby and God gave and God took away. And that began a season for my wife two years. Two and a half years. We just talked about this last week. Two and a half years where she felt that God was the causer of all, but not the lover of her. She felt his bigness. He could create a child in the womb, and he could take it away at his will, but she didn't feel the compassionate care of God. She didn't feel that love. She didn't feel that closeness. 
And in that season, her heart grew colder and colder. And our daughter, little Janie, was born. And she was a year and a half old or so. And she was sitting on Teresa's lap and she headbutted Teresa. And pain shot through her face. She could tell the story better than I could. But somehow in this mix, God said to her, you've got a choice to make. You can let your heart be soft and receive my love or you can remain hard and unusable. And her heart had grown so cold, she just said, God, I want to stay hard. And in that moment, God said, I love you too much to let you do that. And at some point, before or after, she broke and the tears flowed and with those tears of pain came these tears of refreshment from a God who was considering her his treasured possession. And we don't know why God let that extended season of distance happen in her heart. We don't know all the reasons. For every one thing God is doing, he's doing thousands of things. But this we know that She experienced the mercy and tender loving hand of God in that moment at a deeper level having been through two and a half years of not feeling his love. She she felt it probably at a level she would not have felt it. It was just overwhelming mercy. Israel, do you know how much I love you? Live like that. Let Let it shape your character, your identity. But notice This identity as good listeners of God and good keepers of the covenant and living as if you're treasured by him is done among all the peoples. God's special relationship with Israel was never supposed to be just for them. No, God has put his people here on mission so that the original great commission given to Adam might be fulfilled. You're my imager, male and female. Now I'm going to bring you together into a community of families in order that you might fill and multiply and subdue the earth as imagers of God. I want you to display me to the world. And Adam and Eve failed to do so and yet God captured the heart of Adam's son in his day, in the days of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And Adam gave birth to this son, Seth, in his own image, just as God had created Adam in his own image. Adam was the son of God, and now he has a son who represents and resembles and reflects his father. And from that point forward, an entire line of descendants began to rise in a sea of pagan people who were hard against God, who were characterized by their father, the devil, In that sea, there is this small remnant of people who are putting their hope in God, who are trusting in God, who are living by dependence on God. And it moves through Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the other 12 tribes, and now here we are in Egypt. And God setting them apart. And what it says is, if you'll be these things among all the peoples of the world, then you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what we call theological geography. Look at the Mediterranean Sea on the left. Go to the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea and you'll find Israel. This is the ancient world. All the ancient peoples lived in either Mesopotamia in the north or Egypt in the southwest. You see the Fertile Crescent where there was fresh water. That's the only place people could live. Between Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf and Israel is a massive desert. So if people wanted to get to Egypt, they had to go through what was called the land between Israel. If Egypt in the south wanted to expand their commerce into Mesopotamia, where did they have to go through? They had to go through Israel. When God says through Ezekiel, I have placed you at the center of the world. And then the verse that follows, yet your heart has been hard and you have turned toward other gods. God placed Israel in the middle of the map where the two greatest centers of civilization were in order to give a picture of who they were supposed to be. And who they were supposed to be was a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So let's think about that. Where do priests usually serve? Think about ancient priests, not Catholic priests or Episcopal priests. Where do the priests serve? At the temple. For Israel, they had one. It would be built into a structure later in their history. Early on, when they're traveling through the wilderness, it was called something else. It was movable. What was it called? Tabernacle. This is where God made his presence known. It was at the center of their camp. And when Israel wanted to come to meet God, they would come through the priests. The priests would mediate their redemption through the sacrifices. The priests would mediate the word of God. But this text doesn't say, Israel, you're going to have priests. It says the entire nation is going to be priests in the context of the world. I thought I had a little diagram. Sorry. So picture a circle and a circle within that circle The big circle is the world, all the nations who are under a curse and in need of God. They're the offspring of the serpent. Then in the middle of that circle is another circle, and that's Israel, whom God has set apart to be witnesses for him, to represent him in the world, to live for him. They're there on mission. Now at the center of Israel is the tabernacle, the very presence of God. And when Israel wants to meet God, they come to the tabernacle through the priests. But now the entire nation of Israel, 
the middle circle is considered priests. And we have to say, to whom and for whom? So when we read our passage, and it says, if you will, as the center circle, be living for me, heeding my voice, keeping my covenant, being my treasured possession among all the peoples. It's giving clarity to Israel's role as an extension of Abraham and as an extension of the very mission that grew up from the Garden of Eden. Image me. Fill the earth with my image. Through you, Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Israel, be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what's going to happen when you're good listeners. When you walk in relationship with me. Not determining your own way, but following me as a loving father, leading you through a season of challenge. And when you live as if you're my treasure, something's going to happen. If you have that kind of mentality, Israel, something's going to happen. You're going to be who I called you to be. You're going to be fulfilling the purpose for your existence. You're going to be on mission. All of a sudden, you're going to be displaying me to the world. People are going to be coming to me, finding hope, finding help, because you've experienced it in your own life. That's how it was supposed to be. But that's not what happened. Because as we know, Israel, most of the Old Testament is a story of Israel's rebellion, failing to represent reflect and resemble God rightly. They didn't image him. They weren't picture of holiness. Instead of being distinct from the nations, they looked like the nations. And so what God had said to Hosea, you're a priest, I'm going to remove you from being a priest. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from bringing a priest to me. But that's not the final word. God's final word is never curse. It's always blessing. His purposes will never fail. And as far away as you run from God, where there is real repentance, there's real mercy. So let's keep reading. Since you've forgotten the law, I also will forget your children. But know this, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. Why? That we may live before him. That's priestly language. I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned in their midst. How will you vindicate the holiness of your name? How will you show that indeed you're holy, God? When you've got a bunch of people who aren't being channels of that holiness. When they look at us, they don't see that you're special. They don't see that you're our king. They don't see that you're cherished and worth living for. What are you going to do? This is what God says. This is new covenant language. The nations will know that I am the Lord when through you I vindicate my holiness in their sight. So the priests are holy but they haven't lived like it. But the day is going to come, God says. Even though I've removed your priestly status, I'm going to give it back. 
I'm going to make you be what you couldn't be on your own. I'm going to do something before the eyes of the nations through you. But you are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, church, a people for God's possession. To what end? I have made you not to live for yourself, but to live for me. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. We couldn't stand before God and make things happen, but you are worthy. You are the Lamb that stood on our behalf, taking the, the judgment, the just wrath of God, so that as deep as my sin was, I could experience your favor. Worthy are you to take the Lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood, what did he do? He ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And all of a sudden, he's appointed them to be a new Israel, to fulfill the mission of Adam, to display the greatness of God, to put Jesus on display. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. This chapter doesn't simply call Israel to mission. It unpacks the nature of the covenant relationship that they're supposed to keep. So you know the Ten Commandments. I've got a song going through my mind that my wife and I created for our kids when we memorized them. Um, we could take so much time on these words. For example, we could consider how they're words of freedom and not slavery, words that address humanity's innate sinfulness, words of promise, explanation, and motivation, words for every context and not specific cases, words addressing the heart and behavior, words for memorization, words that prioritize life, word that call, words that call for loving God and neighbor. I get all that right out of the text, but what I want us to focus on today is this. When God showed up at the mountain, He showed up in a massive way. He gave ten words to the people. They began to hear the words come, and deep fear grabbed their soul. So I want us to look at these words now from this angle. Who was the audience and what's the significance of this fact? Now there's lots of women in this room. Women were part of the audience. Israel is defined as the men, the women, the children, and the sojourner who is within their midst. That's the foreigner who's not an ethnic Israelite. But as we look at these words, it seems to me that the Lord is is calling for a unique kind of perspective. And he's starting with the leader, who he defines as the leader, this man. And what will be true of the man will influence his entire home and shape how they think about life. 
Why do I say these are words given, I believe, specifically to the head of the household called the man? Well, first of all, it's because whoever is hearing these words are people who, in verse 10, of whom it can be said, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son. So he's talking to someone who's older. But it would also influence the son and the daughter and the male servant, someone who can have male servants and female servants, livestock, the sojourner, and the sojourner who is within your gates that you have influence over. So he's speaking to an adult population that includes, and his words are going to have influence on the rest. But not only that, when he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, he doesn't say you shall not covet your neighbor's husband. Which suggests to me he's addressing directly fathers, men, husbands. People who are prone to have a wrong view of leadership. And if the man gets it wrong in the home, the Garden of Eden already told us things are going to get warped and twisted. And the ten words, these ten commands, as we often call them, are radical. Because in a world that is so prone to have the strongest be supreme, my prejudice wins, so I knock you down. You live for the benefit of my comfort. The Ten Commandments twisted on its head. So that The father who is here placed, this husband-father role, he's placed and viewed as the influencer of everyone around him. The arrow is not going toward the father as the leader, it's going away from the father as the leader. So that biblical leadership is being viewed as not self-focused, but other-focused. It defines leadership in two ways. As following and as serving. Being a follower of God. Israel, chapter 20, verse 3. After it places all of these commands to follow God, to live for God, In the context of redemption, I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It says, give God his right to your allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. Live for me, not for yourself. Let me be the king of your life, controlling your interests, your affections. Today, Pastor John, his text was on Those who sacrifice their children to demons. My thoughts were, what what is guiding? What gods are people sacrificing to that create abortion? 
Gods of fear. What are others going to think? I'm not going to let them know. I'm just going to kill this baby. Or fear that I'm going to be inadequate. Or prejudice. God of prejudice. This baby is deformed. This baby is going to be disabled. So you sacrifice this child to your God of prejudice. Or your own comfort. This doesn't fit into my plan for my life. So you sacrifice the child on the altar to the God of your own ease. Or self-sovereignty. It's my choice to do what I will over the things that I control. And this text turns it on its head and says, you shall not kill. That doesn't say you have the right to life. It says you have to do all you can to work for the life of others. That's the kind of mentality I want you to have. I want you to work so that when it says you shall not steal, that means your neighbor has a right to their property. And you live with a mentality that says, I'm going to work for you rather than working to get for myself. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't say demand honor from your children. It says you have a responsibility to to not be putting yourself at the center in a way that draws all attention to you, but rather if if you're called by God to be the leader, that means you're the leader in following God. You're the leader in serving others. Get it right, Israel. This is not a world about you. This is a world about me and about loving those that are around you. Do you realize how much I've loved you, how much I've redeemed you, how undeserved you are, and yet you've received my love? Be that kind of imager to others. Reflect the kind of God that I am. So this is radical. These ten words are radical in that sense. For a people that are prone to think only of themselves, these ten words turn it on their head and put God in proper perspective and put everyone else around us in proper perspective. It doesn't deny leadership or headship. It just says a true leader is a servant. How do I finish? Look at 20 verse 20. So all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, And they got very afraid. They got afraid of this God who was big and who also had identified the nature of their own hard-heartedness, the nature of their own selfishness. He'd identified it. And they feared. But they feared in a way that wanted them to flee, that made them want to run. Exodus 20.20 says this, Don't fear Don't fear this big God who causes all things, who alone holds your heart and who knows the deepest recesses of your soul. You cannot bury it from Him. Don't fear Him in a way that makes you want to flee. Know this. The words that I am speaking and the way that I am speaking are designed to this end. 2020. God has come to test you. That you may fear Him so that you will not sin. That's the revealed purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. 
And as you fear God rightly, you'll see obedience overflowing in your life. And as you see obedience overflowing in your life, you'll be fulfilling the purpose that God has given you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the context of a needy world who needs to see that he's worth living for. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of a life of wisdom. But Paul says, here's the problem with the world. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But Jeremiah said, echoing this text, for an Israel that didn't fear God and because of that they sinned greatly and didn't fulfill their mission, Jeremiah says, there's a new covenant coming. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will never turn from me. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will put the fear of me in that day in their hearts so that they will never turn from me. And where there is fear, there is holiness. And where there is holiness, the mission of God is fulfilled. Right living all begins with God showing up in a way that creates the right kind of fear. So if you find your hearts taking sin lightly, you're not fearing our God enough. What does he say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the causer of all things who's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Tremble at the bigness of our God. Tremble at the reality of my utter dependence on him. If you're taking sin lightly, the answer is not working harder for holiness. It's seeking greater levels of awe of the bigness of God. And in that context, the mission of God will begin to be accomplished in His church, in you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would show up. As we open Your Word, speak. As we look at snowflakes or at sleet, speak. God, help us just be overcome by the presence, by your presence with us. And even, even more, your presence for us in Jesus if we repent. Move us to greater levels of holiness, just as you promised you would do. What encouragement that as hard as we are, repentance can bring real mercy. Create it within our soul. Grant repentance today. Give us eyes to see areas of weakness where we haven't trusted in you, believed in you, feared in you enough. Overcome prejudice. Overcome our proneness to rest in our comforts rather than to love our neighbor even though it's hard. Move us into people who love better for the sake of your name. You have made us a kingdom of priests that we may proclaim your excellencies. May it be so. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom 
and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.